This podcast is rated S for science and also for spoilers and swearing. There's, there's going to be swearing. Something is killing these people and sucking them dry. Run! It's a stampede! You're a great warrior and a swordsman. And you're ten times bigger than I am, stupid! Welcome, everybody, to Cinematica Animalia, your weekly foray into the biology of movie monsters. This week, we'll be covering 1988's Willow, a delightful romp in the fantasy genre. Time codes will be below if you want to skip ahead to any of our topics, which include the biology and ecology of the Eberisk, whatever that thing is supposed to be, getting struck by lightning, and then Libby will take us down a journey of the popularization of the fantasy genre. I am Adam Hasek, a disease ecologist at the Ben-Gurion University of the Negev here in southern Israel. I am joined, as always, by the Baroness Libby Young, writer at Short Story Soup and our story specialist. Joining us, and we're very happy to have him back, is our vet, our local vet and podcast physiologist, Dave. He's not your vet, Adam. When you're sick, I take you to him. (laughs) I mean, at this point, with the amount of hair that I seem to be losing on a daily basis with the shedding season upon us, it it might work. You might be able to sneak me in. Please talk to your doctor. (laughs) (laughs) But you're a doctor. doctor. (laughs) Yeah, Dave, you're our doctor. Speaking of doctors, we are still missing Sam. We're delighted to announce that he will be back next week, but... He has actually been making his way back to Australia, but in his in his uh, commitment to reduce his carbon emissions, he's actually been swimming back. So this entire time he's been gone is actually just him traveling back from Australia via breaststroke. He's going to be very buff and very bloated from all the water that he's been in. <laughs> mm-hmm. Actually, the more frustrating part of this is the fact that he made his wife and child come along behind him and he's just been pulling them on a raft the entire time. They're so fucking bored. It's going to be pretty interesting seeing what kind of life a pie situation ends up with his uh, wife and child, but also just how jacked his back, shoulders, and chest are going to be and his tiny little legs <laughs> from not really using them as much. Where are we? We are adrift in the middle of the ocean. No. We are all alone. No. On a boat made entirely of cookies. Yes. So a bit of a bummer on the news end this week. Just a lot of bad stuff happening all over the place. Europe is being, uh, specifically the UK, is bracing for some pretty intense heat waves. And hundreds, if not thousands of people are predicted to die from this because of how intense these are and how the infrastructure is not set up to deal with this kind of heat. And this is, we sound like a broken record, but it is the case that all of us are living through right now. This is only going to get worse in the future. So preparing for these things, doing what we can to mitigate it, and working our asses off to really try to combat climate change is a priority for the future. Yeah, I was just going to say the a couple of different organizations have released new studies basically saying that the number one threat to food security in the next 20 years uh, is going to be increased demand by water, followed very closely by heat waves, drought, and worsening income inequality and political instability. Uh, They're basically, but the good news is all of these organizations have said that if we start working together to basically strengthen our global food supply, we can mitigate and in many cases eliminate these problems. Um, It's just going to require more collaboration, which 
we are that'll be easy right we are capable of doing this i will say that of happy news the efforts that much of the world has done to try and bolster and support ukraine even in the ways that they have it's not people turning a blind eye sometimes people will work to try and support other groups or people they don't know and we are living in a world that is far more interconnected i would like to think we're more empathetic in lieu of us not having that many uh, positive news stories i just wanted to share something happy um i discovered uh, a species that has been around for a long time but i've never I didn't know it existed because, you know, I don't know all the animals in the world. Uh, so I encourage you to look up the Dumbo octopus for your <laughs> daily dose of serotonin and dopamine and all the good feelings because it is adorable. Be so fluffy, I'm gonna die! On to the summary. Willow Ufgood, the village loser, aka the village magician slash aspiring sorcerer, finds a baby, Moses style, in the local river. Little does anyone know, the baby is a prophecy that will bring down the realm's evil sorceress slash scary nun, Bavmorda. In a bid to rid themselves of the Nelwyn David Blaine, the village council orders Willow on a dangerous dangerous mission to return the baby to its kind, as for some reason the kid is inciting Nokmar hound attacks, which are obviously bad for real estate. Willow sets off only to meet the lover and fighter, the one and only mercenary named Mad Mardigan. He convinces Willow to give him the baby, and as it can happen to any new parent, Mad Mardigan promptly loses the baby to pilfering brownies, the fey kind, not chocolate, and says, oh well, and goes off to cuckold a very suspecting townie. Willow recovers the baby from the fey folk, whom gift him a magic wand, as well as lead him to a powerful sorceress with a score to settle against Bavmorda. Mad Mardigan feels guilt for the first time in his life and decides to help Willow protect the child and defeat the magic nun. Bavmorda's wrathful warrior daughter that was tasked with killing everyone and retrie retrieving the child eventually realizes her massive mommy issues and helps Willow and helps herself to a love-stricken Mad Mardigan. After narrowly escaping a bacon buffet, it's good witch v. bad witch in an epic old lady smackdown. Willow uses a two-bit party trick to deceive the powerful enchantress, which basically humiliates her to death. The baby is saved and will be raised by a scoundrel slash mercenary as her father and a war general as her mother. So, happy ending? I love the um, the descriptor of very suspecting townsperson. That was pretty good. <laughs> you know what's you know going to happen if Valkyrie's coming to your town. <laughs> I love the description of the boomer battle that takes place at the end. Oh my gosh, that fight. I'll get into that later. <laughs> so Dave, what do we think of this movie? What do you like, I should say? Fuck, I love this movie. Um, the one-liners in this, just... I mean, Mad Mordigan, I remember growing up as a kid and just him being my character when I was younger. I must have seen this movie a thousand times. Um I wanted the golden armor that he wears defending the castle so badly. But rewatching <laughs> this, the delivery lines in terms of the, hey, want to breed? Tempting, but no. Are <laughs> just uh, spouting poor, uh, poetry, the, the ride down the hill associated with the shield. Oh, God, this is just a. A fun movie, and I lost it. I actually had to pause while watching this when he catapults himself over to try and save Willow and just hits the brick wall before landing on top of the troll. It's like, yes, <laughs> yeah, that is how you should do it. 
You gotta love a bumbling and at times catastrophic hero. Oh my god, so good. Supporting hero, I should say. Even the the move where he just like tosses the sword and then catches it and then promptly trips and falls. Like the physical comedy in this as well is fantastic. Running back into their army and then turning around and looking at either of the guys on either side and they're like, what? Get him! Or the <laughs> even the exhausted look right before he has to climb onto our hydro monster. He's just like, oh, all right, yeah, I got to kill that God too. Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, another thing on the to do list. I think, and this is a movie I hadn't seen for the first time, at least until the last year when Libby showed it to me. Forced him and to watch it. Good Libby. <laughs> forced, definitely forced. Um, so it's not a movie I have the strong nostalgia ties to, and which is unfortunate because I know that as a child I would have absolutely loved this. But as an adult, I still got quite a bit of enjoyment out of it. It's a fun world. The characters are core, very enjoyable. The actors are crushing it, especially Warwick Davis and um, Val Kilmer. They're just a delight Good. to watch on screen. Great chemistry. And yeah, it's a pretty fun cut and dry fantasy plot, but I like it quite a bit. Yeah. I For me, can I say everything? Yeah. <laughs> this movie is wonderful it's epic we, we will allow it yeah it's epic it's fantastical it's comedy it's romance it's action it's adventure uh the acting is perfection the soundtrack whimsical the sets transportive i mean you see quaint villages bustling towns a desert snow-covered mountains a battle in a castle um for 1998 the inclusion is off the charts you have a little person as the main hero, a female war general with her own storyline that's not just there to serve a male character's purpose, and then two senior badass babes who get to have the big climactic fight of the movie. I can literally mm-hmm. only think of one other scene like that, and it's Christopher Lee versus Ian McKellen, so yeah. there's some saying something for that scene. Um, it's just, yeah, it's great. <laughs> those are good points. Now, Dave, do you have any dislikes for this movie? Not really. I mean, there, there's two points that I feel they're not necessarily dislikes. They're just in that realm of I forget how much darker some of the storylines or pieces associated with some of these older movies are. Um, the midwife who rescues the baby just getting wrecked by the dogs at the beginning of the film. Oof. Oh, yeah. Um, and just torn to pieces. Yeah. Yeah, the situation that takes place of when they first find the castle and there's that feeling of dread when you just realize that everybody's just been rocked to stone, that's uh, that's rough. Um, I will also say that the terminology that the characters all throw around at each other, the derogatory terms that they have for each of the different groups that exists, um, can sometimes get a little bit eye-raising. Um but at the same time, I do love the brownie hitting Val Kilmer in the face with the phrase, let go of my spear, you stupid fat dakini. <laughs> <laughs> the brownies were great. I think for me, related to uh, Dave's issues with the terminology, I know this is a fantasy world, and by default, fantasy worlds tend to have some ridiculous names and locations and terminology, but... Because this is a world that until recently with the series coming out later this year was kind of a one-off, minus the books that came that a lot of the fans apparently don't like, it doesn't. It hasn't really been cemented, at least for me, in popular culture the same way that all of the Lord of the Rings terminology has. So the villain's name is Bath Morda. We have a character's last name is Ufgood, Mad Mardigan. Like, these are just 
such crazy things to hear out of context. And I think for me, they kind of take me out of it a little bit because I realize they're just made up fantasy names, but it still, it doesn't take away from my overall enjoyment of the movie. itself. And they give you great introductions. Everyone meet lug, (laughs) not a woman, (laughs) not a woman. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I think for, for me, my criticism comes with a modern, you know, approach, which would be, I think it's only fly, flaw is a whitewashed cast. Mm. Um, I think for a movie that does such a good job of inclusion, it is a very white movie. Um, and I hope that they update that in the new show. I f- feel like they will, but hopefully they do. I think one of the main, I think one of the mains is a person of color from seeing the little, one of the little preview things I saw. Into the unknown. That's where we must go. So there is plenty of really fun trivia for this movie. And I think my favorite that I just want to come crashing out the gates with is at the castle where they have all those pigs outside. It was quite an issue for the filmmakers because the pigs were continuously trying to mate with one another, which (laughs) from my understanding of pig mating is raucous, loud, and probably unpleasant to be around. So they had to just keep throwing cold water on these poor horny pigs to get them to stop fucking each other. (laughs) One big pig orgy. (laughs) A big porgy, if you will. I thought it was interesting that Warwick Davis was only 17 years old when he shot this film. Really? So young. Wow. Yeah. Which is even funnier when you think about the fact that his character has two children, one of which he's only 10 years older than. (laughs) (laughs) wow which is hilarious so i might mispronounce her name but my uh, my apologies sorcia so the actor playing sorcia joanne wally whaley she uh accidentally stuck her sword straight into a stuntman's foot when she was supposed to be sticking into the ground at the tavern so much like poor Viggo mortensen breaking his toes kicking a helmet in the two towers it seems that these fantasy movies are never going to be safe from foot related injuries nope (laughs) Uh, this one I thought was interesting. Um, so the the big scene where Willow tries to restore the the good witch Finn Raziel uh, from her goat to human form, he recites what he thinks is the right spell. He fucks it up and basically turns her into all these different animals um, at first. So the special effects team found that both stop motion and optical effects were too technically challenging. And basically decided they wanted to create their own advances with digital morphing technology. Hmm. So they proposed filming each animal and then the actress would double for Hayes, Patricia Hayes, who played the the female sorceress. uh, And then fed the images into a computer program that they hadn't developed yet. (laughs) The program would then create a smooth transition from one stage to the other before putting the result back onto the, f- the screen. Wow. So they actually developed the necessary software in 1987, and then by March of 1988, uh, they achieved what would represent a breakthrough in CGI. So the techniques developed for those that sequence was later utilized for Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, Terminator 2, Judgment Day, and Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. Wow. Wow, indeed. That's intense. Was it also used for the uh, the short-lived early 2000s, late 90s animated um, or live-action show Animorphs? Probably. There's a lot of morphing going on. Never heard of it. <laughs> Listen. Don't just ignore Go our podcast back, episode. Go like, back a year and a half. 
Find our Animorphs episode, listen to it, give it five stars, and then come back. All I know is, now I'm an Animorph. Before we move on to the science, if you want to reach out to the pod, you can you can find Sam on Twitter at BigDrFishBoy, B spelled B-O-I, because remember, he's a cool kid. I'm at Hasek Adam. You can reach out directly to the podcast by emailing us at cinematica.animalia at gmail.com. You can find us on Discord at the Cinematica Animalia server. Once again, chip in with some suggestions, comments, uh, questions. It's also a way to game with us if you're of the gaming uh, persuasion. You can check out our website, cinematicaanimalia.com. If you want to see some more of Libby's writings, you can check out shortstorysoup.substack.com for an awful of good of literary content. And if you want to hear about some more of the hardcore science that Sam and I write about, you can, and my Sam, myself, and a large international team of writers write about, you can check out ecologyforthemasses.com. If you're liking what you're hearing, please give us a five-star rating in whatever podcast app of choice you're finding us or listening to us on. Leave a comment, leave a review. It really helps us, and we would very much appreciate it. And if you leave it for us, we'll read it on the show, if it's nice and not full of hate speech. So to start our science section off today... I wanted to talk about one of my favorite characters in the film, which are the brownies. Um, our ridiculous little running around screaming, dead mouse wearing critters. Now, I started off writing this section and doing my research with the assumption that I was going to come to a clear conclusion that there was no way that the brownies could work. Um, I haven't really reached that conclusion Really? So, I mean, they're, they're mouse-sized. We have mice, uh, and in terms of their physiology, although there are a couple of key differences that take place between humans and mice, there are some things today that I wanted to talk about that the brownies being more similar to mice might actually work. Um, in terms of, I don't know whether or not they would necessarily take on an upright posture. I feel like it would be more likely that they would be walking on four limbs. But their so. physics in terms of your ability to survive when you're that small, yeah, totally doable. Uh, we have to make some small alterations, though. So what is the average heartbeat at rest, let's say, for a human? Let's start with that. I think humans around... Is it a healthy human or an unhealthy human? Let's say a healthy human. Is it around like 70 to 90? Yeah. So basically 60 to 100 beats per minute is kind of where the average comes in across the board. What is the average heart rate that is associated with a mouse? Fast as fuck, boy. Fast as fuck, boy. I'm going to guess. Is it 160? Ooh, is this price of right rules? I'm going to guess 180. Ooh, so Libby is closest without going over. Their average heart rate measures between 310 to 840 beats per minute. Holy That's not shit. right. Talk about a heart palpitation. You can't count it. So in situations that I've had to check on mice before, you literally just put the stethoscope on the side of them and you're like, they are alive. <laughs> the heart the heart is working. Is it just yes. one continual thump? Then yes, <laughs> it's working. Yeah, I mean, to, to put those numbers into context, if it's even, you know, around the middle of that range of like 600 beats per minute, that's 10 beats per second. So yeah, you're not counting that shit. Right. Checking another stat, what's the average respiratory rate or breaths per minute that's associated with a human? 25? Per minute? 20? I don't know. Sometimes I have to remind myself to breathe, so. <laughs> <laughs> so the average is 12 to 16, but 10 to 30 is sort of the range being totally fine. Okay. Guess what the average respiratory rate is associated with a mouse? 
if they're anything like gerbils, and I was working with gerbils today, Ooh. and I saw their little chests go very, very, very fast, 120. I'm going to guess 50. They go 80 to 230 breaths per minute. That's nuts. I win one. <laughs> Why? It'll be three for four. <laughs> Why do smaller animals exist in a period, and this is a common thing across the board for our smaller mammals, they need to have a faster heart rate and a faster respiratory rate? Because uh, surface area is a bitch. If you're tiny and you need to keep yourself warm, if you're a big polar bear and you're producing heat, you're trying to keep yourself alive and warm, it's very easy to do. Your surface area is actually technically decreased for your mass. You're in a position where you can hold on to heat for a much greater degree. Mm -hmm. uh, small animals have to have a faster metabolic rate. Now, there's a big discussion around this because obviously with a faster metabolic rate, there are a couple of demands. Uh, one of them is eating. So... We typically have three meals a day. Uh, mice say, fuck you, hobbits, and they have... Speak for yourself. Mice have 15 to 20 meals per day. Um, My kind of animal. For mice that get into the house, <laughs> apparently this is an exterminator question, because they will oftentimes come back to the same source of food 15 to 20 times a day. So if you've left your cake out and you've been like, oh, the mouse got to it once. No, he didn't get to it once. Um, in terms of their other concerns, because of their eating habits, they need to continuously grow teeth because of the food that they take, and they eat everything. Uh, mice are omnivorous. They will eat vegetables, fruit, meat, each other, whatever it is to Babies. get through that, yeah, that satiable hunger. Ba ba yeah, baby the, mice, I should say. See the documentary Hook, where they put someone in the boo box. <laughs> yeah. Or the documentary Too Fast, Too Furious. It's a rat, but same idea. Close enough. Yeah, same thing. Um, in terms of why I'm pretty confident that I wouldn't have that many problems comparing these to humans if they were small is because we use these as research examples to try and study human formation. So almost all of the genes in mice share functions with genes in humans um, mm -hmm. that it's the basically that means the way that we develop from the egg and the sperm in terms of our organs, it's very similar to what takes place in mice. Um, the genetic similarity also means that humans and mice tend to inherit the same traits in the same way, which is why we're so interested in studying things like heart disease or Alzheimer's that takes place. So, I mean, where exactly these brownies would become an offshoot of evolutionarily, this would be more of an atom question. But in terms of their physiology of operating this small, it's totally doable. I don't think you'd be able to hear them. They would be fairly limited in terms of their vocalization capability just based on small lungs, which is why we know that mice communicate at a, a much more hypersonic frequency. They do. Um, and they would be, these guys would be eating constantly in terms of searching for food, um, as well as it would be really hard to talk with them in between breaths. And it would really be interesting to watch their little chests go while they were talking to you, because all you would see is these thumping heart rates the entire time. <laughs> and they'd probably dress a little warmer. <laughs> yeah, I yeah, think they would probably. dress much warmer. The The gerbils that I work with, we have to you we have to use um, anesthesia on them to get them unconscious for a little bit. And that usually takes anywhere from three to five minutes. And if we don't put the proper warming 
um, insulation underneath the, the the chamber we do this in, they can freeze to death in just a few minutes. Like it's not a Jeez. joke. And that's in like a room wow. temperature room <laughs> in the desert. <laughs> that is a room that is at 25 degrees Celsius, which is like in the upper 70s, low 80s. Very pleasant for us. But I like the idea of these little, these already crazy characters becoming even more crazy and manic and just eating constantly and running around their high-pitched voices and wearing more furs. Stealing babies. Having teeth. Stealing babies. Yep. High libido as well. So you got to remember that mice reproduce at really frequent rates. Um, So it would explain why these little guys are carrying around love potions. I don't think it's a love potion. I think it's just an excuse for them being horny all the time. (laughs) Exactly. Oh no, I spilled a love potion on myself Oops. again. Oh. <laughs> oh? Whoops. If Habitus puts my process on, we will have to try and toast it again, won't we? Mm-hmm. Cool, so for a brief uh, handbrake turn into the ecology, I quickly want to touch on two small points before we t- we uh, focus on the Eberisk. Eberisk. Dragon Got thing. it. So, the double-headed thing. Double-headed snake lightning mouth boy. Mutated troll. Mutated troll, yes. In this world, we have the Nelwyn, which are played by the little by little people. And we have the larger hominids, which are the Daikini. Now, this is not too dissimilar to what would have been happening in early hominid evolution, where we have Homo floriensis, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, which were a species of, they're, they're often called the hobbits of, of hominid evolution. They would have been about the size of the Nelwyn. And I don't think it's going to be too much of a stretch to think that the Nelwyn having their own little space in this world and the Daikini having their own little space in this world kind of separated is not going to be dissimilar to what would have actually happened in early hominid evolution. So that's pretty cool, I think. And for the death dogs, a.k.a. the Nakmar Hound, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, these, I, I looked them up on the uh, the Willow Wiki because I was just very intrigued by these obviously human, well, real, real world dog wearing a helmet on its head monster, which is really fun. <laughs> Played by Rottweilers, actually. So the oh. Death Dogs, which is the other name for these, they were bred to hide from woodsmen, warriors, and wizards. So this thick, dark um coat and this fur makes sense from a camouflage standpoint if you remember our discussion in our bigfoot episode two weeks ago they are called the creation of the foulest sorcerer which i think is this world's way of saying there were some assholes who were breeding these poor animals to be very violent and very mean they're this world's fight dogs (laughs) yeah they're these world's fight dogs which i just want to give a quick a quick shout out to these dogs um I loved Willow as a kid and I watched it as much as I could, but I didn't get to watch it very often because my sister, who is older than me, was terrified by these hounds. She would have nightmares Mm. about them. (laughs) Which is so funny to think these goofy ass, clearly a dog in a costume running across the street. A dog in a rubber mask. (laughs) Rubber mask bouncing all over the place is like, that's scary to you? Yeah. Oh, I still find them terrifying. Yeah. It's a fun design. I really like it. But yeah, in this world, they are, the, the death dogs are, their bites are known to cause a lethal infection, and apparently their spittle burns like acid. Mm. I think this is once again a bit of a, I think this is editorializing these, you know, these normal animals where I think the lethal infection makes sense if you're getting bitten by a predator. Their mouth is going to be full of all kinds of nasty stuff. I'm sure Dave has seen plenty of these unfortunate things on some of his patients. And it would not be the best 
thing to deal with. So like, yeah, if these things bite you, they'll kill you because magic and it's lethal all the time. Not just because we don't know what medicine is. And we can't really take care of this grievous bite wound very well. And then related to that, the spittle burning like acid, I think is just someone being in a lot of pain from a very painful bite wound. Well, infections yeah. too. Infections hurt like a son of a bitch yeah. and they can burn. They 100%. do like acid. You might say. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now for the focus of the ecology section, the the Ebersisk. So we know that having multiple heads is the bane of Dave's existence, so I'm not going to ask him to try to make this work because it just doesn't. It just doesn't. Also, projectile breath weapons, it just doesn't work. I'm sorry, it would be really cool. I even put in, in parentheses, sadly, when I said this doesn't work in my notes because it would be really fucking cool if animals did have breath weapons like this. It would obviously be terrifying for us, but it would look really cool in a documentary. But the basic body plan of this creature, if it had just one head, is not too far off from a bunch of organisms that already lived on our planet, you know, hundreds of millions of years ago, and those being the sauropods. Frontosaurus, Apatosaurus, Gigantosaurus, all of these really big, small-headed dinosaurs that had long necks, long tails, and big, stumpy legs. Now... This creature, the Eversisk, just has two big front legs, almost like arms, kind of holding its chest up. And then it has a bunch of little bitty caterpillar-like legs on its back, on the back of its body. So I think this creature is a, a sauropod of some kind that has adapted to live in the swamp or a semi-aquatic lifestyle, which is one hypothesis for these sauropods anyway, because of how big they were and how difficult it would have been to support themselves on land. If you're in the water, you're buoyant. It's going to be helping to support some of that weight and take a lot of pressure off of your knees. Now, I'm going to be taking some of this, some quotes from a paper written by Sandra et al. in 2011 from the Biological Review of the Cambridge Philosophy Society, sorry, Philosophical Society, (laughs) which is all about the evolution of gigantism in sauropods, how they got so big. So, quote, compared to other herbivores, the long neck allowed more efficient food uptake more efficient food uptake than other large herbivores by covering a much larger feeding envelope and making food accessible that was out of the reach of other herbivores. Sauropods thus must have been able to take up more energy from their environment than other herbivores. So if we imagine our Ebersisk in a swamp, let's say the Florida Everglades, competing with crocodiles or alligators, they both exist there, only place in the world where that happens, because it has such a long neck, it is going to be much better at snatching a poor, unfortunate tourist off of the shore of the lake than an alligator would be, because an alligator or a crocodile needs that tourist to come right up to the water's edge. Or, you know, a deer or something if you want to be boring with it. But this Eversus can just reach right out, grab them from anywhere from, you know, about 10 feet, 3 meters, or maybe even more, depending on how big this thing got. But it's going to make it a more efficient feeder. Then, this is what going to be a bit of an issue for our Eversisk. For the sauropods themselves, the long neck evolved because of how small the head was. The the bones, in this case, were a bit more similar to bird bones. They were, quote, pneumatized, Dave's favorite, and it made the neck a bit lighter. The small head was also only possible because these dinosaurs did not chew the food. They would just swallow everything whole. If they had a gastric mill and if they were masticating the food, a.k.a. chewing it, it would slow down how quickly they could eat. And these creatures needed to eat a lot. I don't have numbers here. This doesn't make sense to me because, Adam, you have quite a large head and yet you also swallow your food whole. 
I also have a big mouth and a throat that just dilates. So I can just put an entire pizza in there without having to worry about chewing it. Hmm. That and the surgery to have my, to make sure I could dislocate my jaw. That helped. So basically the structure of sauropods is what gave them an advantage over their smaller competitors in this case, smaller herbivores are Ebersisk being a sauropod carnivore is not something that I, that to my knowledge exists or would exist, would have existed in the evolutionary history of dinosaurs, especially given that what we just learned from this paper is that their small head and ability to just take up all of this plant matter very quickly is what kind of gave them an advantage and let them grow so much. But our Ebersisk has a pretty big head. It is small for a sauropod, and it looks like it has the teeth of an omnivore, if not a straight-up carnivore. So I think that its size is not outside the range of what we've seen in other carnivores on our history, on this planet at least. But because it seems to be specializing on meat or on eating animals, it's probably not going to be end up it's not, not going to end up getting any bigger than it already is. But besides that, I feel like realistically this is something that could have evolved. And I really hmm. like that. Minus the I was about to eight say, legs. Minus I think it, it would probably just have four. The breath weapon and the multiple heads. <laughs> I mean, that would definitely evolve. We've seen that all the time. Yeah. Yeah. And so, Adam, that's what you think the wand did? It just it rapidly evolved the, the troll because that's how evolution works? It just it caused it to... Yes, it rapidly evolved it in a directed fashion to make it more advanced because that's what evolution does. If you can't tell, listener, I'm being facetious. <laughs> I like the idea of a Lenmarkian wand. Exactly. A Lamarckian wand. Oh no, I can't eat this tree. Quick, make my neck longer. (laughs) Give me a tiny head. You be careful. I am a powerful sorcerer. See this acorn? I'll throw it at you and turn you to stone. I'm really scared. No, don't. Don't. There's a, a peck here with an acorn pointed at me. The last thing I just wanted to talk about from the science perspective, because I didn't realize there was so much research in this. Rewatching this movie, I was all ready for the final death of our evil empress as she would be struck down. And I totally forgot that she kind of did it to herself with the help of a little bit of lightning. (laughs) Would you say that the ending of this movie was electrifying? Ooh, yes. (laughs) But no. High voltage. (laughs) I, I totally forgot that if For our listeners, she stumbles backwards because she's upset that a David Blaine-style magic trick has (laughs) not something that she can understand. And in her frustration, she accidentally curses herself and draws lightning down upon her, which, if I remember correctly, scatters her essence into the 13th realm. Yeah, she gets banished from the the realm. Fair enough. To the Shadow Realm. Yeah. Willow spoke the deep magic. (laughs) He did. The best part of that conversation with her is when he says, I have transported her to a realm where evil can't touch her. And her immediate response is, no such realm exists. But she like, Loki is like, <laughs> or does it? Does it? <laughs> what a good liar. She was great. <laughs> Bathmorda. Lightning strikes each year in the world kill somewhere between two to 4,000 people. Uh, Yikes. I didn't realize it was yeah. so high. In the United States, it's responsible for approximately 20 deaths every year, but there are hundreds more that are injured, and survivors oftentimes will suffer permanent neurological damage. So there have been a number of emergency doctors, as well as professors that have basically sat down and looked at the physiology behind lightning strikes, and they found some really 
terrifying shit. Of 10 people struck by lightning, nine will survive. Pretty good odds. Um, But those struck will suffer a variety of short and long-term effects, ranging from cardiac arrest to confusion to seizures, dizziness, muscle aches, deafness, headaches, memory deficits, distractibility, and personality changes. Yikes. Um, what, 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 what are the bad things they suffer? <laughs> Certain people, I feel like you'd be like, you should get struck by lightning. Um, most survivors <laughs> do typically suffer personality changes. Uh, we don't fully understand it, but it seems to be very much in line with what we know about brain damage. The electrical movement seems to cause some type of rewiring, and the brain has a lot of trouble restructuring afterward. That is scary as fuck. I know. I mean, that it makes sense that when, you know, you understand that our brains are run on electrical impulses, that a mm-hmm. large jolt of electricity might change those impulses. <laughs> right? Insert uh, Zeus lightning bolt from Thor 11 Thunder. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When someone is struck by lightning, it happens so fast that only a very tiny amount of electricity ricochets through the body, which was something I figured you got the full bolt. You only get a bit of it? You ooh, you only get a bit of it, but here's the problem. So the vast majority of the electricity travels out over top of the body in what is described as a flashover effect. So, what causes external burns? Well, as lightning rushes over the body, it comes in contact with sweat or water that is present on the skin. The liquid water increases in volume oh, no. and is turned into steam. Oh, the steam no. transformation is so quick, it triggers a vapor explosion. The Ooh. reason that so many people wake up following a lightning strike naked, the steam causes clothing to literally explode off the body. That, obviously that's horrible but that is just such a right? funny sentence of yeah i got struck by lightning and my clothes exploded right? what the fuck why are you naked my clothes exploded oh i had always wondered because whenever i hear about lightning strikes it's often followed by i looked over and like there was the naked dude who'd been struck by lightning lying there it's a real thing um So if you think about areas of the body are going to also be affected differently. So what's an area that builds up a lot of moisture on the human body? Shoes. Oh. We'll get to that. So shoes will go exploding and firing off, but different types of material. Leather jackets trap steam inside, holding it to the body and increasing burns. Substances like polyester melt, leaving pieces behind embedded Ah. within the dermal tissue. I didn't, I didn't realize we were doing a horror podcast this week. <laughs> Adam and I are both physically <laughs> cringing right now. <laughs> uh, the lightning that Oof. moves across the heart can cause the heart to stop. However, there is pacemakers that are associated with the heart, which will allow it to restart its natural rhythm. The same can't be said, though, for if electricity gets into the brain, where it can knock out the centers that are associated with things like respiration, and we don't have a backup for turning that back on. Um, now as the electricity basically moves secondary to the flashover effect moving across the body, there are areas where the lightning is more concerning. So, uh, the electrical path changes and does head towards areas that are theoretically containing more moisture or more water. Uh, electricity tends to migrate through the eyes, the ears, and the mouth when you are struck by lightning. 
Uh, this would explain why report or survivors frequently report damage to eyes and ears. Oftentimes they develop cataracts. Uh, hearing can be permanently impaired. Uh, the more worrisome trend by electricity striking either the ears or the eyes, it can rapidly reach the brain through that method. Uh, it can also, if it gets inside, ride through the blood or ride through the spinal cord to affect different tissues in different ways. Uh, there's still a lot of ongoing research associated with lightning strikes, that is but gnarly. it is far more terrifying than I ever realized. And I feel a little bit, not that bad, for Bagmorda. Is that her name? Bagmorda? Bavmorda. 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 Being struck by lightning. That would suck, but also you did try to kill a baby, so. What's this? Extremely high voltage. Well, I don't need safety gloves because I'm Homer Sip. Um, yeah, I, I have some questions regarding that. There are some very popularized myths about lightning. Um, and I want to see if we can maybe bust some of those today. So one of the myths that has permeated throughout my childhood and, and adulthood is that um, rubber in a car, like the car's tires, will prevent or help you from being... A, pre- sorry. Rubber from the, your car's tires will prevent you from being electrocuted. The electricity will take the shortest path, basically, to reach the ground. And we're still understanding a lot about lightning in terms of the direction it comes from. We used to think it came from sky down, and now there's some information to suggest that the electrical charge exactly is moving upwards. Um, but electricity chooses the path of least resistance moving through your car and grounding against the tires it's actually fairly safe to be traveling in a vehicle during this event and again it's one of the reasons that we were talking about that electricity moves on the external part of the body it tends to take the fastest pathway through you which is why such a small percentage actually decides to rocket through your tissues yeah and from my understanding as well the vehicle acts itself like a faraday cage that it, yeah. it goes through the metal. That's what I was about to say. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, if there was anybody who knew this, it was Nikola Tesla. And seeing just images of him standing in front of those enormous Tesla coils, just lightning bolts shooting all over the place, and him just walking <laughs> around it like, yeah, what's up? It's fine. Yeah. I know, I know the science behind this, and I'm safe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This would also explain why he did all of his experiments completely in the nude. He wasn't going <laughs> to risk any of his clothes shooting off. He just decided to embrace it. Yeah. Also, if his uh, portrayal by David Bowie in The Prestige is any um, is any indication, he was a very good-looking dude. So, of course, he was going to be naked while doing this. Because why not? <laughs> I think the other myth I'd like to bust today is that uh, lightning never strikes twice, which is a phrase we have all heard uh, and is mm-hmm. remarkably Ooh. untrue. <laughs> yeah. Well, lightning often strikes. Opposite, actually. Yeah. The same place multiple times. Yes, and there have been people who've reported being struck repeatedly by lightning, which does feel like one of those cartoon situations of Zeus looking down on you, and he's like, fuck you in particular. I think the record's like 14 times by somebody being hit by lightning. Oh, the same person. Jesus, seriously? Oof. At the same time? No, se- sequentially. <laughs> okay, good. Like, getting hit, uh, some time goes by, get hit again. I mean, maybe it was somebody who's working in a situation where they're much more prone to lightning strikes, like working on a, I don't know, being... Highline pole or something. Sitting in a fire watch tower. Yeah, being on a 
or you know being a highlander um that kind of thing highlander <laughs> highlander there can be only one the quickening <laughs> there can be only one make an awkward transition into the story section <laughs> regale us with your fantasy words which yes like every good sixth grade paper i'm going to start my section off with a quote <laughs> from theodore seuss geisel <laughs> oh my god <laughs> fantasy nice. is a necessary ingredient in living it's a way of looking at life through the wrong end of a telescope which is a beautiful quote um yeah i saw a bit of trivia for this movie which got me thinking about my section and the trivia was that Lucasfilm, which was the George Lucas, as we all know who that is, uh, who put on this oh, film, heard of him. Uh, <laughs> had trouble getting this movie funded due to a lot of major production companies believing that the fantasy genre was, quote, not a viable one, which baffled me to read that because I'm like, wow. the fuck? Hilarious. <laughs> yes. Um, because yeah, in 2022, we know that fantasy has an enormous market. Um, the genre of the book I'm writing is after all fantasy because it was a huge impact on me from an early age. And that definitely was result of media exposure. Um, so I kind of wanted to take this time to do maybe like a little mini series and I'm just going to do part one today and then save maybe part two slash three for another fantasy movie we encounter, uh, later in our podcast journey. Mm -hmm. Uh, but the two questions I'm going to ask today and hopefully answer, uh, is where did it begin the fantasy genre and why is it now popular? Um, and that's just kind of why, what got me thinking, like, why is fantasy a popular genre? Uh, so with roots stretching back as far as Homer's The Iliad and the Odyssey, fantasy books continue uh, continued into history with hits like Beowulf, Arabian Nights, which spread the genre into other parts of the world. This continued throughout the Renaissance, magical elements popping up in Shakespeare's works, in particular A Midsummer's Night's, Night, Midsummer Night's Dream, which is like a mushroom trip story if you haven't read it. <laughs> More so, oh, so it's just like a massive, mad acid yeah. hellhole trip, isn't it? Yeah, it's like I'm pretty yeah, sure I think... that the lead character is a bit of an ass. Yeah. <laughs> what the? I puck? don't get it. What the puck, Dave? Uh, the brothers Grimm nice. <laughs> took a collection of oral stories, publishing them as Grimm's fairy tales. In the early 1800s, Hans Christian Andersen took center stage with many stories, including his lovely Little Mermaid. And this started an uh, entire fantasy ugh. trend for children and adolescent consumption. Lewis Carroll's Alice in, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, which is also a mushroom trip. J.M. Barry's Peter Pan, uh, L. Frank Baum's The Wonderful Wizard of Oz, and many, many more. Um, but to quote author Audrey Gotcher, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, uh, this all changed in the aftermath of World War II, when a flood of adult-aimed fantasy literature was released. The shift in audience was largely due to Tolkien's famous works, The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, which popularized fantasy in the eyes of adults, despite even the fact that The Hobbit was written as a children's book. Uh, Tolkien himself drew heavily on the epic quest idea from Beowulf. Um... Ian J. Simpson, who is a literary researcher. Um, oh, sorry. Let me start that sentence over. 
So this was also the first recorded time that fantasy was used in reference to a literary genre, which I thought was fascinating that it had never been like its own genre before. Uh, and Ian Jason. For the Lord of the Rings? Yes. That was the first time? Uh, around that age, yes. So not just Lord of the Rings. Okay. With C.S. Lewis and, and uh, those releases. All, you, all Adam heard was Lord of the Rings and he just went, yes, Lord of the yes. Rings, Lord of the Rings. Yes, Lord of the Rings, Lord, Lord of the, the Rings. Rings. But it's obviously it's fantasy, but I guess I've never in my head associated stories like Peter Pan or Alice in Wonderland as fantasy. But of course that's what they are. But I always now, because of Lord of the Rings, think of fantasy as dwarves, elves, magic kingdom, lots of forests and mountains. Yeah, and I think that's just a, a perspective that, um, you know, that's what your fantasy consumption has been. So, of course, that's what you associate with it. Yes. Yeah, so Ian J. Simpson, who's a literary literary researcher, speculates, and this is a quote, I suspect the term fantasy rose after World War II in part due to an increased optimism and need for release from the horrors of that time. However, I'm thinking you could also attribute it to the publication of the Magazine of Fantasy and Science Fiction, which first published in was which was first published in 1949. And then there was the publication and popularity of The Lion, Witch of the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe in 1950 and Lord of the Rings in 1954. That's really funny to think about a magazine being the magazine of, of fantasy and science fiction when now so many people are like divided on this. And this is one of those Coke versus Pepsi things that will tear a family apart. Yeah, I think especially in the earlier days, there was not so many options or, or rather works of, of fiction to create those separate like subgenres. So they all got lumped in together and also horror got lumped in with it. So a lot of people consider, you know, Frankenstein or Dracula. That's also quote, quote fantasy or even science fiction um, hmm. instead of like horror, horror fantasy, you know? So you kind of really start breaking down those genres with the more and more of those publications. Cool. Yeah. Very so, cool. So that's kind of where my research ended. Um, so now, so we're now we're stuck in like the 1950s, right? And so this doesn't really answer my question of why in 1988 were people like, no, fantasy isn't viable. So this is where my speculation <laughs> comes in. So I believe that the fantasy genre has always been home, and to paraphrase C.S. Lewis, to those of us old enough to read fairy tales again. But I think that the Inklings, which if you don't know who the Inklings are, it is a group founded by Tolkien and C.S. Lewis, continue to lift the accessibility and popularization of the genre, even posthumously, with the retelling through film of Lewis's Narnia and especially Tolkien's Middle Earth. Uh, the early aughts movie sh movies showed those dumb production companies that fantasy is lucrative. I think the biggest issue it faces is that it really needs a true fan to tell it right. It's like someone writing about mm -hmm. loss that hasn't experienced it or love without ever falling. You need someone that has been transported to another realm to have the ability to transport others. So I think that that is why fantasy has had such a resurgence is because we had wonderful directors uh, that were fantasy fans themselves tell the stories correctly. And that's marketable. Incredibly so. Mm-hmm. Now, listeners, I think we can uh, see, you know, that Libby is now putting away her whiteboard covered in red strings and many different markings and hmm. clues for all of her, her reasoning behind this. 
Yes. I just I just want to acknowledge too that I know that I am saying Tolkien's name incorrectly. I do know this. I can't stop saying it that way. That's the way I've always said it. That's the way I was raised with. So I apologize, but it's like when someone says crown versus crayon, <laughs> which I also say crown. <laughs> you say crown? I do. <laughs> and I will never not We're getting say di- crown. <laughs> We're getting a divorce. Get the fuck out of here. What? Uh, so caramel. How did I not know this? <laughs> it's crayon. Is it? Is it? Yes. I hate it so much. Is it? So is it, is it supposed to be Tolkien? It's Tolkien. I was like, hang on a minute. I've been saying is that I was saying I was saying Tolkien, but it's not pronounced like that. It's Tolkien. Do we feel bad for the Ecker Ecker double-headed lightning dragon, the Death Dogs, or the Brownies? No. I, no. <laughs> maybe maybe the dogs. Just because if they've been bred into that situation, that sucks. Brownies are doing fine. They've got their own life, screaming at each other and trying to fuck cats. Um. But the uh, and the our Echaboris, our transformed troll. I mean, he immediately eats one of his friends. So I don't feel like he was a good troll if he's still got any of those memories behind. I think I've always had, at least in the, these type of worlds, a bit of a soft spot for trolls because it seems like they're of lower intelligence, and other creatures tend to take advantage of that. It's like a beast of burden type thing. So I feel bad, especially if it went through what I'm guessing was a horrifying transformation for it. Does it have two consciousnesses now? Is its consciousness split between two heads? Is it a completely different thing? We'll never know. Or is it just so in pain that that's why it eats its friend? It's just like lashing out because it's just writhing in agony. All three of them tried to attack Willow and a baby. No, fuck those dudes, (laughs) all right? No one came at them. They came at Willow. (laughs) Totally deserved. I don't blame the death dogs. I blame the death dog breeders. Yes. Yes. That's that's for sure. Now, would we recommend this movie? I think I know the answer, but I have to ask. I'm legally obligated. Yes. Yes. <laughs> a, a thousand mad mortigans. Yes. I recommend this movie uh, because it will just explode your clothes off when you watch it. <laughs> I haven't watched this movie it. last year. I can attest to yes, it will explode your clothes off because it's that good. Definitely watch it. So next week, we'll be dipping our toes into the shark-infested waters of Shark Week by taking a look at Netflix's The The Sea Beast. Not 2008's Sea Beast. Different movie that we may do at a later date. But, again, 2022's The Sea Beast. The cute cartoon. and Sony Imagination. Not the woman in the bikini. (laughs) And like a lot of fun. No, not that one. But, remember, join us next week. As we say here at the end of every episode, the monsters aren't real, but the science is. Bye. Bye, guys. From the creator of Star Wars and the director of Cocoon, Willow.